Hey everybody, welcome back to Casa Walsh, a Beverly Hills 90210 podcast. On today's episode, we'll be going over season two, episode 13 called Halloween, and that premiered on Halloween, October 31st, 1991. So um, on this episode, I actually have Anthony Stark joining me. He played a character, uh, it was a cowboy in this episode, and I got to talk to him for a little bit. So I have a little interview with him that I'll put um, at the end of the episode. I'm first going to do the recap, but I'm going to do a little bit of a quicker one because um, I had a really good conversation with Anthony and I want you guys to hear what he had to say about it and, um, you know, just talk to him about his career and stuff like that. So it was really, really cool. So I really hope that everyone enjoys this episode. So this episode starts out and Scott is talking to David, uh, talking about an egg fight that they do every year uh, for Halloween. But David said he doesn't think um, anyone it's going to happen. Anyone's going to show up because I guess um, people don't really do this egg fight anymore. I guess it was pretty popular back when they were in uh, middle school. Uh, then we see Emily talking to Brandon. Uh, she's wearing a vest and uh, she's seeing if he's going to some party some dance um but brandon says no he usually just dresses up as dracula and tries to scare the trick-or-treater so he's uh not going to the dance i guess then um kelly donna and brenda are talking about costumes and what they're going to wear um for halloween they're all at this costume uh store and um brenda wants dylan to dress up as robin hood um, but they end up going with a bonnie and clyde theme um, and then Kelly is dressed as a go-go dancer. Um, she doesn't have a date, so she's kind of hoping to meet a guy there. Um, so she's looking for something a little bit more um, sexy, which girls tend to do on Halloween. And um, Donna picks out her outfit, but she doesn't want to tell anyone um, what she has. She's waiting for them to see what she's dressed as. Um, then we see Cindy is putting out Halloween candy, and she's putting out raisins, which is disgusting. Um, as a kid for Halloween, I would always hate this one house that was on my block. I lived on a court. It was like a horseshoe shaped. And there was this one house on the opposite side from where, uh, so it was like an inner, inner and outer, um, horseshoe. There was one, I was the first house on the inner horseshoe. Um, and there was one house on the outer horseshoe around my block that would always put out raisins it was like this older woman so I always had like you know trauma from never wanting to go to that house so that's pretty gross that Cindy's doing that um but then yes yeah, she's uh also wearing a tie with a pumpkin on it so she's getting into the theme of Halloween um and then yeah when Dylan comes to see Brenda he's obviously dressed as Clyde because they're doing their Bonnie Clyde theme um, at the party, we see Steve is dressed as Zorro, and Donna's secret outfit is a mermaid. And typical Donna, uh, she can't move. She can't walk in it because of the mermaid feet. She's having trouble moving, so she's just, you know, typical Donna. Um, and then when Kelly walks in, everyone's just looking at her. She's wearing this very sexy outfit. Um, she says she's a good witch. Um, David, who is not dressed up at all, uh, which I don't know why. Um, I guess he was supposed to DJ this party. Um, 
he uh, asks her to dance and then she says maybe later David is then talking to Steve and he kind of brings up this egg fight that they used to have and Steve said oh those were fun when we were in middle school and then David um you know you see him kind of like reminiscing about it in his head and he's walking home and he runs into Scott who's ready for this egg fight that you know clearly is not happening um, then we see Brandon is handing out Cindy's disgusting raisins to people and Emily shows up with her niece and nephew who are trick-or-treating and they're dressed as ghosts. Um, they're twins too, so it's kind of cute because obviously Brandon is a twin as well. Um, and then Emily invites Brandon to come along with them to go trick-or-treating and he agrees because what else is he doing? Um... And then at the party, we see some guy, you know, is hitting on Kelly and, you know, Kelly told him off and Brenda's like overheard it. And she was really proud of her because she said she can really handle herself, um, you know, because she's dressed obviously super sexy, but, um, you know, she's not going to take any crap from these just idiots. So, um she asks Kelly if there's anyone that she's interested in and Kelly sees some cute guy who is dressed as a cowboy so you see like that's kind of who she's setting her sights on. So Kelly goes up to this cowboy and they start talking and he apparently goes to USC and they're just having this flirty time. Um, we flash over to Donna every so often and she's standing in a corner because she can't move still you know clearly um Steve even questions Donna for wearing it he's like you always wear these like idiotic you know um <laughs> outfits and then we also see Kelly and the cowboy dancing um and they're just getting along they're having a really good time then we're back with uh Brandon and Emily and we are um we're they're just talking they're really getting along really well and then just then Emily realizes that she can't find her niece and nephew anymore and they're looking for them they're kind of freaking out they're talking to cops just then uh Brandon and Emily go back to Brandon's house and when they walk in the door they realize that her niece and nephew are actually at the Walsh's they ended up getting lost but they remembered the house so they went back there so they're all uh safe and you know happy now then we see David and Scott are hanging out, um, just, you know, waiting for this egg fight that's clearly not happening. Then they uh, see a car coming up and they're going to egg it just for fun. And they see it's Brandon and he kind of makes a Brandon and Emily and they kind of make a little joke uh, about what they're doing. And then just as they drive away, David and Scott have fun and they just start throwing the eggs at them. But they miss uh, the car, obviously. So we're back at the um, party and Kelly is talking to the cowboy again and she mentions that she wishes they had a place to go and talk. It's so crowded. They can't hear each other. Zoe takes her to a room upstairs and then I guess she realizes maybe it wasn't a good idea. So she says she wants to go back downstairs uh, to the party, but he kind of locks the door. So we immediately see she's in kind of a situation that she probably shouldn't be in. Um, she says she wants to go and then he's kind of apologizing. You think he's going to go, but then he ends up pushing her on the bed. He gets on top of her and luckily for her, um, just then there, uh, Brenda and Donna walk in and they see that something was happening. Brenda calls for Dylan and Dylan 
and Steve come in and they kick him out of the room and she's obviously all upset because she realizes, you know, maybe she shouldn't have dressed like that. They really make her feel better. You know, it's not her fault. She just wanted to meet someone and things got out of hand and, you know, she didn't know him and that's the point. You know, she could have been date raped and a lot of the show early on, I think actually, you know, throughout the series is trying to, you know, just talk about social issues. This is a, you know, issue that happens in high school and college and it's just, you know, proving a point that just because you think that, you know, this guy is nice doesn't mean that he necessarily is and, you know, respectful or whatnot. But, you know, at the end, um, you know, she feels better. We see Emily and Brandon um, at the peach pit at the end. And it seems that they are now an official couple. And, um, you know, Kelly is definitely being, you know, Steve loves her, and the girls are there for her. So in the end, you know, it's all okay. Nothing bad happened. All right. So um, this is really cool. I have Anthony Stark with me, who um, has been in tons of stuff like Seinfeld, George Carlin show, Make It or Break It, and of course, 90210. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But just um, I wanted to do a little background on you. So uh, did you, you were born in Syracuse, raised in Syracuse? I was born in Syracuse. We left Syracuse. My mom and dad are from the Netherlands. Oh, and uh, my dad was uh, working for an insurance company. uh, And um, he got, you know, he was in human resources or what they used to call personnel. Mm -hmm. And he got promotions and transferred and stuff. So um, he started out working in Syracuse and then uh, he got a transfer to the Bay Area of San Francisco. Um, So from five years old to 10 years old, we lived in that area. And then we moved uh, to the main corporate office for Kemper Insurance, which was in Long Grove, Illinois, when I was 10. So then I ended up growing up in uh, northern Illinois, in uh, Lindenhurst, Illinois, from 10 to 18 when I went off to college. And you went to Marquette, right? That's correct. So what brought you, uh, you know, why did you choose Marquette? You got a scholarship for acting? I did actually, uh, I won a performing arts scholarship that it was the first year they were offering it. And I just happened to catch wind of it from the, when I was touring the campus and I wasn't even supposed to be a theater major. And I, I, um, I uh, begged my parents to see if we could look at this brand new theater, the Hellfair Theater that they had just um, um, opened at, at Marquette for the theater majors. And, you know, I wasn't supposed to be a theater major, but that's really what I wanted to do. And, um, so as we're touring the campus, I, I sort of begged my mom and dad, can I just poke my head in that theater? I want to look at it. And it was a beautiful little theater and uh, with, with, you know, rehearsal studios and all this kind of stuff. And um, our beloved uh, secretary uh, at the theater, Joyce Karcher, who was sort of like a den mother figure to us, she happened to be there and she's kind of said, hey, you know, we're having an audition on Saturday for this new scholarship that was donated to the university by uh, Liberace, the piano player, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, had, he was from Milwaukee, so he just, he decided to create this endowment that he gave to the university and left it to the university faculty to pick recipients. It was the first year they were offering this, this scholarship. And uh, so I quickly, with my high school drama teacher, Ken Smaus, I threw together uh, an audition it was just like a, a Tuesday that I found out about this thing, came back and auditioned on Saturday. And long story short, I won the thing. 
And one of the requirements to receive it is I had to be a theater major. So that kind of got me over that hurdle with my parents. So how'd you, so you were interested in acting starting like high school or earlier before that, like kind of had that, you know, start. I was, I was always kind of fascinated with the whole thing and really sort of was, I, when I was growing up in the seventies, there was all these amazing sitcoms, particularly, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show, all in the family mash, the Bob Newhart show. And of course the Carol Burnett show. Mm -hmm. And I would sort of study these people, you know, cause my, I think my primary interest really was comedy. And um, my first time on stage um, uh, was a big, big variety show we had in my, in my junior high um, when I was, I think, in seventh grade. And um, I wrote like this funny sketch of a kid running for president at 12 years old. And, you know, it went over pretty well and I kind of got hooked from there. That's awesome. So um after college did you move out to LA or New York or how did that kind of how did you start um getting well you know? the, my plan was you know I was going to be a Chicago theater actor mm -hmm. um because that's what was that's you know that that's the Chicago acting community it's, it's mostly about theater mm -hmm. and then you know movies would come through town and stuff but what drew me to Chicago initially like my junior year in college I started working professionally and um is because there was all this activity in Chicago and I was chomping at the bit to be part of it. You know, all these John Hughes movies, you know, coming through like the breakfast club and all this kind of stuff. I felt like I was missing out like crazy. Um, I eventually um, even auditioned for uh, Ferris Bueller's day off. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't get in that one, but um, at the same time, Gary Marshall was coming through town. You know, I just graduated from college. I was still living at home. I, I managed though, to uh, get cast in a in a uh, a play um, uh, in Chicago, uh, I think it was Jean Cocteau's *The Infernal Machine*. It was like a modern retelling of the Oedipus Rex story, and um, but I, so I just gotten cast in a play, which was a big deal. Um, but then Gary Marshall came through town, and I managed really long story, but I managed to kind of like flim flam my way into that movie, um, and. Um, and that brought me out to LA, you know, because that was, it was a movie called Nothing in Common. It was starring Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. Mm -hmm. And Gary scooped up a bunch of people from Second City um, and me. Okay, like Second City's top, like, you yeah. know, um, main stage company. Um, he scooped up people like, you know, Mike Haggerty and, and John Kapalos and Mona Leighton and, you know, all these great actors and, and improvisers because he wanted to improvise big sections of the movie. Right. And since I was able to kind of keep up with these guys in the audition, uh, you know, he put me in the movie too, along with another, one other guy named Julio, who, uh, but me and Julio were the only guys who were not Second City Company members. And so, but we got cast, we shot exteriors in Chicago, and then we finished interiors at Raleigh Studios in Los Angeles. And um, I just, it was like Gilligan's Island. I, I came out for the three hour tour and never left. So who are some like, um, you know, idols that you grew up like, you know, idolizing, you know, when you were a kid or, you know, getting into acting and stuff like that? Um, it's a great question. Um, I was fascinated by Carol O'Connor mm -hmm. um, and, and his way of playing comedy from a real character perspective. Pretty much everybody on the Mary Tyler Moore show, really just a lot of the people that I mentioned before. Um, 
even Bob Newhart had this, this kind of droll way of delivering a line, which fascinated me. But, you know, I also, I loved, you know, the TV show Kung Fu, and I was fascinated with the martial arts and got into that very young. And I loved Bruce Lee and, you know, all this kind of Steve McQueen, all this kind of stuff. But it was when I watched uh, an actor named Derek Jacobi, famous British actor, doing a miniseries for PBS, or they did it initially for the BBC, called I, Claudius. It's all mm -hmm. about, you know, the, the decline and fall of Rome, basically, you know, um, and uh, based on a novel by Robert Graves. It's like a 12-part series, and, and Derek Jacobi gives this performance as this, uh, you know, insecure, stammering, um, you know, uh, Caesar mm -hmm. that is, was so compelling, I started to think, I think I want to do this, not just the funny stuff, I want to, like, act. And then, um, again, uh, uh, some, some teachers from my junior high and then later Ken Smouse, my, my uh, high school drama teacher, you know, I took these trips up to um, the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Ontario, Canada, mm -hmm. where we watched, you know, these full on, you know, top shelf productions of Shakespeare. And I, it, by that point, I was like, this is really what I want to do. Um, but it wasn't really until my junior year in college, even after winning the uh, the scholarship that I made a concerted effort to persuade myself and my parents that I could actually make a living at it. And that's when I started auditioning in, in Chicago and got cast in a movie of the week for CBS. That's cool. So I just wanted to talk about um, Seinfeld for a little bit because I think, you know, that's probably one of the, you know, bigger, you know, most notable roles and Seinfeld's on, you know, every right. day, all day long. So um, you got cast as Jimmy on the show. Um, right famous guy who likes to speak in the third person. Uh, right. That was season six. So the show was already well established at that point. Right. Um, so like, what was your, you know, when you got that role, were you like thrilled? Like what were your, you know, kind of- I was thrilled, you know, I mean, because um, the George Carlin show had just ended, which was a big heartbreak. And, um, you know, cause it, it, the show had such enormous potential and it just, you know, th things went sideways with that, production in, in a way that was sad. You know, the cast we had, you know, the writing staff we had, it should have been on for 10 years, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> it came and went. Um, but it, it had just been canceled. And then I got this audition without much notice, like the evening before um, I went in. And then I went in and I read, and Larry David and, and Jerry Seinfeld were in the room, you know? That's back when you actually read for people, which makes such a big difference, particularly with comedy. You can you can you can sense the the room tone. And it's you, sending it, it, tapes now, right? That's all it is what? now. Really? Everything's all taped, and you know yeah. I don't know, you know, and and half the time people are doing selfies. It gets to the point of like, what are casting directors actually doing again? You know, because they used to have to put these sessions together where they had to have the all the actors lined up coming in, and then the writers and producers are, they're sitting there, mm -hmm. you know, and and you're interacting with them. And sometimes when it came to comedy, I put as much thought into What's a laugh I can get before I read the material? And what's one I can get like on the way out the door? Right. You know, and you can't do that on a taped audition. But, you know, uh, Jerry was there and Larry was there. And um, I could tell they thought I was funny. And because uh, I just, I came up with this kind of oddball take on the guy, this sort of speech cadence. And, um, and I, I, I could tell that they got where I was coming from. <laughs> <laughs> how like sort of sort of epically obtuse this guy was mm -hmm. and so uh 
and, and, and like, you know, it's, it's sort of an odd delusion of grandeur about him, you know? And so, but I walked out and is when I walked out, Mark Hirschfeld, the casting director said, don't go anywhere. Just, just hang out for a while. So they saw a couple more guys and then there was a bit of a pause and Mark Hirschfeld comes out and this has never happened to me before, but apparently this was their process. He comes out and he says, you got the part, uh, take the elevator down to this floor. We're, we're going to start a table reading in about 10 minutes. Oh, wow. So it was like that. So, um, and then, you know, I did it and it was a, it was a really fun week working on that show because, you know, um, I am, you know, I am, I'm something of an improviser. I also played with an improv group out in LA here called comedy sports for a couple of years. And, um, you know, when I felt like Larry and Andy Ackerman, the director, were open to me ad-libbing things in rehearsal. I mean, when you have a run-through, it's got to be cleared because the run-throughs during the course of a week on a sitcom, it really is a lot for writers to be able to hear their own words and to decide if they need to rewrite. Mm -hmm. But if you can pitch something or throw it out in a, uh, you know, in a, um, uh, in a rehearsal, and the director likes it and runs it past, you know, uh, the producer who runs it past the writer. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, let's put that in. You know, I, I really got to uh, ad-lib a lot of lines that made it into the show. And um, by, by the end of the week, I just remember Larry kind of standing in front of me going, uh, we need a line here. How about this? And I say, how about that? Well, how about this? How about that? We do that for a minute. And I finally came up with, you know, Jimmy loves the velvet fog. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, and so that's like, that's how that one came in, you know, and Jimmy's going into shock, I think was one of mine too. You know, so, so that was fun that, you know, what's funny is that the people that are okay at what they do tend to be super controlling. And um, the people who are great, like Larry David mm -hmm. and Gary Marshall, um, if they see that you're funny, They'll, they'll pull as much out of you as they can. They don't care where the idea comes from or who gets credit for it. They just want the show to be funny, right. you know? And so, uh, I you know, even though uh, Larry David has this sort of persona of being sort of constantly pissed off, you know, uh, he's actually a very sweet guy. That's cool. Does it, so, and that was filmed on uh, live audience, right? Studio? Live audience at uh, CBS Radford in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Valley. Okay. Oh, interesting. For some reason, I don't know why. I guess because it's New York, I thought it was filmed here because I know. No, um, they, they, New York yeah, no they, they, it was filmed out here in L.A. And they just had um, a couple of New York style streets on the lot. OK. You know, and that was that was all you ever saw in Seinfeld was that same one street yeah. that they used to walk up and down, you know, and uh, and uh, and other than that, they were in a cab which was, I think, green screened. And then, you know, in the cafe or in Jerry's apartment or something, which was all in the soundstage. Yeah, I guess they do the same thing. Like Friends also took place in New York, um, but filmed. Oh, yeah, I, I worked uh, on the Carlin show for, for that year. We were working kind of almost next door to Friends um, in 94 for that first year. Okay. You know, I'd, and I'd see those guys in the commissary and stuff. That was at Warner Brothers. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. I actually took a tour of that because I live in New York, um, but I was actually, I go out to LA a decent amount. So I remember taking a tour of that and they were saying that a lot of friend stuff was shot there. 
Yeah. Warner Brothers lot. So um, do you still, like, do you get recognized by Jim as Jimmy sometimes still, or? Well, not with the goatee and the long okay. hair that I have from quarantine, um, but uh, people, you know, I mean, I have, because I don't look that different, you know, like when my hair is the same and you know, they don't have glasses on or whatever. And, uh, um, but generally it's just one of those things, you know, that people know, like when I go home, I'm from a little town in Northern Illinois. Everyone knows I played Jimmy on Seinfeld, you know. It's one of those things that sticks in people's heads. It was a very popular, you know, that episode was a good episode. So it was like, uh, you know, I never- Yeah, I was, I was voted like, I don't know, top 10 or top 12 uh, fan favorite guest stars of all time, which was nice. I was up there okay, with, cool. uh, I was up there with um, um, Brian, um, uh, oh, Brian Cranston? Know, Brian Cranston, um, who, who I worked with on that episode. Very oh, nice yeah, guy you also. Oh in that episode, yep. Yeah, yeah, he plays uh, Tim, the pervy dentist. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, that's fine. So I, was, I, was up, I was up there with him, so that was nice. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so I want to just talk about 90210 for a little bit. So sure. um, you did that. So this was in 91. So this is probably earlier in your career, I assume, this episode. Well, you know, what's funny is I got my SAG card in 1984. Oh. So I'd already been like a professional for seven years, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and I was a couple of years older than, than those guys were. And it was sort of early. I, and, and I knew the show had like exploded, but I'd never seen it. Right. So yeah. I was, I was, I was, I, I was not impressed to, to be there because I'd probably worked more than they had. Yeah. And, you know, they were playing the high school kids. I was playing the college kid, you know? Right. And, um, so I just took people as I found them. And I tell you what a, what a great, great bunch of people. I mean, um, I use uh, Jason Priestley, for example, as an example of how um, um, a series regular should treat a guest star. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, other examples, Nathan Fillion, Alex um, um, O'Loughlin, you know, from mm -hmm. Y5O, yep. even Tim Dalton from the Bond movie that I did. Mm -hmm. It's like he did this thing where I was just first uh, on the set and we we're on this like big kind of grassy kind of campus area. I forgot what exactly we were filming. And he was like, like, I don't know, like a 50 yards away from me. And I see him kind of, you know, kind of uh, having a, a sidebar with a, 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 an assistant director or something. Mm -hmm. And I see someone kind of looking over in my direction, gesturing at me or whatever. And then, and then he comes walking right over to me and saying, you know, hi, I'm Jason. Just wanted to welcome you to the show. And, you know, all, all this kind of thing. Like really, just to me, like a really classy move. Yeah. You know? And, um, um, but, you know, like Nathan Fillion, he's Canadian, so he has no choice. They're all <laughs> nice. Um, but, uh, but, you know, then um, I remember Brian Austin Green. He was just kind of a kid. He was like right. a real, he like was a, the youngest like, one. Yeah, he was like a real teenager, but like a sweet guy. And um, uh, Ian Ziering, who I've sent, seen many times since then, always got a big grin on his face. Very nice guy. And Luke Perry, uh, I talked to a lot actually working on the show. Very down to earth, wonderful guy. And um, I actually got to be friends with Luke later um, when uh, his son and my son were uh, in the same preschool. Oh. You know, and so I'd see him at like these little peewee pool parties and stuff like that yeah. where all the little knuckleheads running around is very cute and um and uh i worked primarily uh with um jenny right 
with Jenny Garth, who was really, really sweet and, and a really good actress. Yeah. Yeah, because so you guys had, so you played, um, it was a Halloween episode. And right. You played a cowboy. I don't think you had a name. I think it was just cowboy. I think it was just cowboy. Yeah. Um, Ra and, rapey cowboy. Yeah. yeah. That, so yeah. Yeah. You, um, it's humongously Peter. inappropriate cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I was looking, I was like, what is it? Cause I, I just, I don't know if the last time you saw the episode, I just watched it just, you know, preparing for this. It's, been, it's like, probably, you know, I think the last time I saw it was sometime in the late nineties when I was visiting my family in the Netherlands and I saw it come on and I was speaking German, you know, so that was interesting. Oh, that's funny. They had this. Yeah, I saw, I saw the, the dubbed German version. Yeah. That's I think funny. that's probably the last time I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you meet her, um, your character, you guys meet at this Halloween party and she's looking to meet a guy. So right. you guys kind of, you know, have this flirtation and then you go up to a room and you have to kind of, you know, it's like a date rape episode. So right. what are your feelings going through, like, you know, your mind, like you're playing kind of a guy who's about to rape a girl? Well, you know what? I, 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 I in retrospect, I didn't think, I don't think I thought it through enough, mm -hmm. you know, except when we got there, it kind of hit me, you know, when, when um, we kind of had a, a little private rehearsal, just me, Jenny and Michael Cattleman, the director. Mm -hmm. And I started to think, and I think, I thought, you know, let's really work this out mm -hmm. so we don't have to do this any more than, than is absolutely necessary. Right. Because it really hit me um, when we finally went to shoot it, how profoundly messed up, you know, uh, uh, that sort of thing is, you know, the, the sort of real pathology of someone who would derive pleasure yeah. from forcing themselves on someone who's like literally crying, okay? Right. And it kind of made me uh, nauseous, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. I had a visceral reaction to it that I did not anticipate, yeah. you know, because I'm not the most methody guy in the world. I just kind of do it, right. you know, and then I and then I kind of go with whatever feelings end up trundling upon what I'm doing. That's sort of the way I was taught. It's more of a stellar, Stella Adler approach. Yeah. Is that act, acting is, uh, acting is action. It's doing, right. You know, it's a series of actions and then you just trust your emotional life to kind of hook itself into what you're physically doing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and what you're mentally pursuing. Right. But anyway, it really was, it was really kind of upsetting. And uh, particularly since Jenny gave a really good performance and was really uh, playing well a woman who's it, it utterly distraught. Yeah. You know, so, uh, scene, yeah. so yeah, it was, uh, it ended up being a rather intense kind of experience and made me never want to play a rapist again. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Um, so I imagine she was probably, because she was pretty young then too, I imagine, right? I think she was. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we were all pretty young, but I think she was. I mean, I might have been. Uh, it was you know, ninety. In, it was ninety-one. So yeah, so I might have been twenty-seven. She might have been twenty, twenty-one. Yeah, so something like that. She, she, but I just remember she was so beautiful. She's really, yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. Is there any other memories that you have, like filming the show, that kind of stand out to you? Uh <laughs> sort of. I don't. I don't want to. Um, like make it sound like I'm bad mouthing her, no, but yeah. um, Shannon. But 
but it's, you know, Shannon's kind of notorious anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God bless her and everything. I know she's been through some health yeah. struggles and stuff, and I wish her all, nothing but the best. But she, she had a, you know, had this reputation of being kind of uh, a live wire. And as we're rehearsing this delicate moment, that all of a sudden I thought, okay, we're going to really kind of choreograph this and work it out before we go to shoot it so we're not doing it over and over again. Um, all of a sudden, it was so funny because it was a Halloween episode, right? Yeah. So everyone's got these weird outfits on. And all of a sudden, you know, um, this, 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 this woman comes marching in with her hands on her, with one hand on one hip and holding like a, a, a Tommy gun machine gun in the <laughs> other hip dressed as, as, as Bonnie Parker with a little beret on and very, in a very kind of impatient, exasperated tone says, are we going to shoot this or not? Oh, you, know? Wow. you know, because we were taking a minute and I, I didn't know who she was. I kind of didn't know who any of them were. Yeah. And um, again, I felt like I was an established guy and I kind of just stared at her. There was this beat of silence. And I looked back at Michael Cattleman and, and I said, I'm sorry, I was under the impression that you were directing this rodeo. <laughs> and he said nothing, Jenny said nothing, and, and um, Shannon just kind of went, ugh, and, <laughs> and walked off. And, and we continued rehearsing. And you know, and I, again, I don't share that story to make her look bad. It's like oh, I'm yeah. not exactly telling tales out of school. I just, it was just very funny to see this, um, this exasperated young woman walking in, you know, with, with one, elbow akimbo as they say with one hand on her hip and, hold, and holding a machine gun or whatever in the other hand yeah pretty funny yeah they had a lot of um you know i didn't even realize that it probably started that early i know that like her and jenny butted heads a lot because she only shannon ended up leaving the show like two years later so yeah um you know i, I wasn't so well and i also worked on charmed later right but was she had already left. The show? Yeah, she was. So it was Rose McGowan took over for her. Ro I, that's who I worked with. I worked right. with Rose and and um, um, Alyssa Milano, Holly, and Alyssa Milano. And I'm, I was trying to think of the other girl's name. Holly Marie Combs. Uh, Holly, yeah, Holly. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was, it was Holly, Alyssa, and um, and, and Rose. And oh, she's another one, Alyssa Milano, class act. Really? I mean, she's she, you know just comes up and says, hey, welcome to the show. And That's cool. she's, just, she's just a cool chick, yeah. But anyway, um, but what was that? What, what were we talking about? It wasn't about? just anything that stands out that you remember from uh, shooting the 90210 episode. Uh, Besides Shannon. Uh, There's just, nothing. <laughs> no, so yeah, that was a funny moment. And, uh, and uh, just um, that the main guy who supposedly uh, roughing me up or whatever was Ian and uh, or right, I don't know. You at the end, I think. Yeah, they were just sort of like you know, they were just you know, it was they were just they were all such nice guys, you know. It was I was was inclined to say you know you could you could you could knock me around a little harder than that. It's okay, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah. I always thought it was uh, but, weird. Uh, it was it was a, it was a good time. Yeah. It's interesting because I was, thought it was weird when I'm watching it. So it's all these kids, they're, in, they're juniors in high school and they're going to some party and then your character is a college kid. So it's like, college kids and high school kids are not really hanging out at Halloween parties together. So it's curious, like, were they going to like an older kid's party or you were just hanging out at a high school party? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a little creepy, you know? Uh, I mean, not that the character wasn't creepy already. Right. Uh, but yeah, that is a good question. Um, 
you know, it could have been either one, right? I mean, yeah. they, they could have been sort of trying, they may have talked their way into a frat party or something right. like that. And, you know, um, but, or this kid, you know, could have been, you know, uh, for a high school girl trolling for younger, more naive girls or something yeah. like, that. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, he was charming. Wasn't he? Yeah. Nice guy. Yeah. Um, so other than like 902, are there anything, uh, you know, you'd mentioned Ferris Bueller before. So were there any roles that you auditioned for that you didn't get that you really wanted? I was, I, um, I was devastated that I didn't get cast in Band of Brothers, you know, because uh, I, I, I read for that and the, the, the um, Meg Lieberman, who at one point was Mark Hirschfeld's partner, um, she brought me in for that and I read for a couple different roles. I got as far as reading for Tom Hanks and he didn't cast me in anything. It was kind of really devastating in a way because I just lost another series that I was doing up in Canada called Cold Feet. I'd come back and I'd really worked hard on it and been pursuing something in the show for like two months, you know, and, um, but he didn't put me anywhere in, in that cast. And it, it was, it, that was very upsetting because it would have been like eight months of work and they were shooting in Holland mm -hmm. where my parents were from and who lived under the Nazi occupation. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really wanted to be a part of it. That was really painful, but it's one of these things where it's like, you know, sometimes you just don't, don't get it. Fortunately for me, I don't have like any monumental stories about like that part I turned down that turned out to be, you know, this, this star making role Yeah, that or whatever. was the next question. If there was anything that you turned down that ended up nope. being something. No, I've never turned down anything that I've re regretted. The other thing is when I don't want to do something, because I don't get offered stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I've been a, journeyman actor my whole life. I've never had the kind of breaks where I don't have to audition. I have to audition. Mm -hmm. And I but usually have, have to- have a long list, you know. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I have a long list of credits, but I've fought for every one of them. I've mm -hmm. had to go in and compete for every one of those, you know? Um, you know, maybe I was offered like the part on Castle, right? Mm -hmm. Which I was, but I'd already read for Castle. Right. Just a different role, that kind of thing. And then they called me um, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, um, but, uh, uh, I am the sort of person, because I audition for things, I don't really, I don't turn down a role. What I would turn down is an audition for something. When I read the material, I say, I just don't like this. Mm -hmm. Or I, I can't do this for this or that reason. Right. You know, and um, like the, there's just, there's a very short list of things that I will not play, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and so it's certain things I won't read for. So even if the thing had become a hit or whatever, I wouldn't have known that I would have gotten it. I just wouldn't have, I just didn't read for it. You know, um, it's gotta be a bit of a dilemma when you, although it'd be a quality problem that I would like to enjoy when you're getting all these straight offers for roles mm -hmm. and you've got things that conflict and you kind of like both of them, you know, you got to really do a deep gut search about which one to do. You yeah. Know? Are there any um, movies or uh, episodes or shows that kind of you're really proud of that really stand out that you've, you know, work that you've done? Uh, in, 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 uh, my favorite individual episode I've ever done, I think, is uh, an episode of a show called Cold Case. Because mm -hmm. um, that was a guest star driven show that like when you were the guest star, you were actually the star of the episode because it's all these flashbacks where they're trying to put piece together your life to figure out why and how you died you know 
and I, I play this really interesting character and um, he's dying of cancer and yet someone kills him anyway. And they're trying to figure out why would somebody do that? And it ended up being, you know, a, a kind of mercy killing by his ex-wife that he begged her to do, ah. you know, because they couldn't figure out why would, why would anybody kill a guy who's already dying? So there was, yeah. and, and he was such a jerk, you know, before in his life. But then as he started to die, his humanity started to open up and he went around and kind of made amends with people and all this kind of stuff. And so he had this really interesting arc in just like one episode of the show. It's a little bit like playing Scrooge, you know, in A yeah. Christmas Carol or something. It's this really interesting redemptive arc. And um, that's like the most fully realized single episode of a show, I think. Um, probably the, my favorite character that I played overall was Ezra on The Magnificent Seven mm -hmm. for CBS in the late 90s. Um, that was just a great, you know, this Southern riverboat gambler who's always got a, you know, uh, a, a card up one sleeve and a Derringer up the other and all this kind of, they let me do whatever I wanted with that character, rewrite my own dialogue, all kinds of crazy cool. stuff. And, um, you know, uh, and other than that, it's just, just a lot of things that, that I like to varying degrees, you might say, you know. That's cool. Um, so I just have a few more uh, questions, just more like kind of fun questions. So um, if you couldn't be an actor, what would you be? Um, well, the plan was I was gonna, was, I was gonna be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if I could be the, the kind of lawyer who does a lot of actual litigating, you know, the kind of, that you see on TV. The courtroom. Where you really are trying to persuade uh, uh, a jury what is, what is real and what is right in mm -hmm. this moment. I think I would have been very good at that, actually. You know, uh, I've had slow periods as an actor where I think maybe I should have been a lawyer. You know, yeah. listen to mom and dad and gone to law school. Um, <laughs> But that, that probably would have been what I did. And maybe then that kind of dovetailing into politics of some sort or another, I think that that would have been something I would have been handy at. Mm -hmm. um, so have you any uh, TV shows or movies that you can recommend that you watch during this uh, pandemic that we're on? Oh, sure. Oh, gosh, you know, so many things. Peaky Blinders on I Netflix. That's good. I haven't watched it. It's very violent, so brace yourself and feel free to close your eyes sometimes. But um, it's it's the best made television series ever, in my opinion. Oh wow! And um, the the performances, the acting across the board is stellar. The look, the production value, the costumes, the the feel for the times, and Cillian Murphy's. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say he's in that, right? Yeah. He's he's stunning. I mean, he is like up there. Um, as a sustained cinematic performance, he's right up there with uh, Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. You know, I mean, it's really, really stunning. Yeah, I feel like and, he's very underrated. Oh, uh, he's very underrated. Yeah. Um, speaking of underrated, uh, Jason Bateman in Ozark. Ozark's a great show. Um, I, um, I'm a big fan of Shameless. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've, if, if you've never watched the American version of Shameless, just binge watch the whole thing from the beginning. You'll be addicted. I cut out at some point, but then, I, you know, I'll probably cut back in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving some out here. I just watched, uh, God, a really good show, and I'm forgetting what it was now. Um, the Last Kingdom, I enjoyed a lot. And um, I just watched the first season of the show called Mrs. Fletcher on HBO that was really good. Cobra Kai 
is so much fun. Yeah. Are you watching it now for the first time or you finished it? I, I finished it. Because I, I watched it. I had a YouTube TV. So I watched it because it was on YouTube uh, the last two years. And then I guess they lost out on the bidding. So Netflix got it. So now it's on Netflix. But I think I want to rewatch it before season three. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. And, 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 and let me, and last, but certainly not least, and maybe the best one of all, maybe the best single season I've ever seen of a TV show, Perry Mason. Oh, really? On HBO is fantastic. It's got this great, intricate plot. They don't billboard it in a way, mm -hmm. but it, it pulls on a lot of um, big news stories in the 20s. It's all fictionalized, but I'm a history buff. So you see like, uh, uh, something that has to do with the Fatty Arbuckle story. You see another, uh, uh, the whole big subplot um, that had to do with the characters clearly based on Amy Semple McPherson, who's a mm -hmm. big evangelist in the 20s, you know? And it's got that um, Matthew Rees or Matthew Rise from mm -hmm. The Americans. Yep. Fantastic performance. He's and great. just great casting. It's got one of my... Um, favorite actor Stephen Root in it you know who you've seen in a million things he's one of these guys people don't know his names but they go oh that guy because he's he's a genius so um so yeah Perry Mason is another one I highly recommend all right cool um do you follow any sports and if so like what teams do you root for you know I've really fallen away from watching team sports what I'm really about is uh mixed martial arts mm -hmm. um the UFC yeah um you know, I like uh, a lesser known um, organization called WCK Full Rules Muay Thai um, fights that they have um, on like, I think it's on one of the ESPN channels. And, um, and one of the announcers and, and ringside commentators is a guy named Blinky Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. And I used to train at his kickboxing gym in the Valley called the Jet Center. It okay. was founded by Blinky and by Benny the Jet Urquidez. And um, you know both world champion kickboxers, and um, so I've been studying martial arts of one kind or another since I was a kid. So what you know what is appointment television for me mm -hmm. is when the UFC is on. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a monster. You know. Yeah. Let's see. Well, you know, and the thing is, I was also a boxing fan, mm -hmm. and when the UFC came along, it was sort of this curiosity, even to people in the martial arts world. Yeah. Like, what is this? And who'd they get to do this? And what is it, you know? And it slowly developed and was properly organized into a proper sport, mm -hmm. something that was sustainable. Yeah. And that had some kind of coherence <laughs> to yeah. it, you know? And, um, and it's not like, mommy, mommy, why is that man eating that man's ear? Yeah. You know? And, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I don't, actually, I don't think they ever allowed fighting, but, um, Mike Tyson. <laughs> um, Mike Tyson. Yeah. So he was kicked out. Yeah. Um, so, but they, you know, they really organized it into a coherent sport, which has really evolved into these, this thing where yeah. now it's been going on for 25 years. And, and some of the guys, you know, all of us, we started out in some kind of classical martial art. And then we started to explore around, usually under the influence of Bruce Lee, who encouraged mm -hmm. people to do that, right. to step outside of your comfort zone and, uh, look at the problem from a different perspective and all that kind of thing. You know, and so like when the UFC first came along, I'd done all these kind of striking arts and everything like that. And then I saw these jujitsu guys winning. So I studied jujitsu for a couple of years, you know? Yeah. But um, um, I forgot where I was going with this. Um, must've been a lie. 
Um, uh, so, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how it's evolved. And some of these young fighters now, they never lived in a world that didn't have the UFC, that didn't have mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. They didn't have this really cool laboratory where you can really see, because there used to always be these arguments among martial artists about what works and what doesn't work and which style is better than that style and this, that, and the other thing. And it's been a laboratory to boil everything down to, to what doesn't, doesn't work, you know? Right. So, uh, yeah, I love it. Um, so, uh, what is a favorite vacation spot of yours during normal times? Um, well, I go home and visit my sister in Illinois a lot, mm -hmm. you know, um, because she's got a beautiful house on a lake and I've got kind of like, she's got a big, like three story house in the bottom part of it, which, and I lived there for a while. Um, it's, I, I sort of converted it into an apartment. It had been like office spaces when she and her husband had, had, a, had a business there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I kind of converted it into an apartment. And um, it's got all these windows looking at this lake. So it's this beautiful view, summer or winter. You know, it's almost more beautiful in the wintertime when, when the, all the trees are denuded of their leaves and there's all this snow and you look at it, this frozen lake. It's really incredible. So I like going back and visiting her. Um, you know, um, Cabo San Lucas is always great if you live in LA because it's like an hour away. Yep. And, um, um, I went back recently to visit cousins in Boston for a family memorial of my uncle. Um, but like, you know, I, I used to, I, I used to be a real traveler, you know, um, and I, I hope at some point in my life to get back into that again, because I've been everywhere. You know, I've got family everywhere. I've got family in the Netherlands. I love, I've loved going over there, but I've been to, you know, Ireland, Holland, um, you know, uh, Italy, Greece, Spain, you know, I've been all France, um, mm -hmm. all through Europe or Western Europe anyway. And, um, I, you know, I got to go to Tahiti and Bora Bora a long time ago and I visited my cousins down in Australia. So, you know, I've got some places I'd like to go. I mean, I think I'd also like to go down to, um, since it's not that far away from us either, like Belize or Costa Rica or someplace mm -hmm. like that, because I used to, I used to dive, I used to scuba dive and I haven't gone forever. So I'd have to get sort of recertified, but you know, I almost like snorkeling just as well, mm -hmm. I've never you know, done. And, you know, and um, because you don't have to, it's, it's so simple. And if you can hold your breath for a while, you can dive and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Uh, my favorite trip I think I ever went on though was, um, me and my ex-wife and like a buddy of mine and his brother was like the captain and also the father was there. We were on this little boat, there was just six of us. And we charted our own co course because my friend's brother was a, had his sh ship's captain license. Mm -hmm. And we charted our own course through all the leeward islands. And we would just drop anchor at a different island, you know, Dominica, St. Martin, and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, um, and sleep on the boat and then, kind of go into town to eat something and then, you know, go on to the next island. That was an incredible trip. That's awesome. Um, if you could eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh gosh. The toughie. <laughs> um, well, let me just boil it. You know, maybe like Japanese food. Mm-hmm. Their diet is very healthy, yeah. you know, 
it's, it's got just the right kind of protein and the right, right amount of it, the right amount of vegetables, this, that, and the other thing. You know, because I'd be, I'd, I, okay, if I got to eat this the rest of my life, I'm not going to go with pizza or something because, you know, I'm not going to feel too well after about a month. Um, <laughs> but you really could eat a Japanese diet, you know, um, for the rest of your life. So I think I'd go with that, something like that. <laughs> um, lastly, do you have any, like, projects in the works or anything? I mean, I know it's quarantine now. But... <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't because I was just sort of um, starting to get the year going mm -hmm. and starting to read for pilots and, you know, stuff like that um, when everything shut down, Yeah. you know? So, uh, you know, and I, in 2019 had been really slow for me. So I needed to kind of get my momentum back. Well, now 2020 has been completely shut down. So uh, wish me luck. Cause it's going to be a challenge for me to kind of get going again. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I don't know, sort of reintroduce myself to, to some people. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully in the new year, hopefully we'll have a vaccine or something by March or April would be my guess. Yeah, you know, I'm hoping. So I don't think it'll happen at the end of this year, but. No, I, I don't think so either. That's just, you know, that's um, just, you know, propaganda or whatever, right. wishful thinking maybe. But um, from what I'm hearing about trials that are being conducted and whatever, I think it'd be realistic to suppose maybe March or April, you know, hopefully, yeah. we'll see, we'll see. Hopefully, yeah, because this year I think for everybody was kind of just, you know, shot year. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I guess, yeah, where can people find you, like on social media? What are some of your handles? I'm on Twitter uh, under my name, Anthony Stark, um, okay. all one word, um, of course, uh, at Anthony Stark, Stark with an E at the end, capital A, capital S, I believe. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. How cool was that? Um, pretty awesome that I got to speak to Anthony. Um, I don't have any fun facts or tidbits um, from uh, for this episode, pretty much. You know, he told some stories, so I'll uh, leave it to uh, my interview with him for that. Um, thanks for listening to Casa Walsh, a Beverly Hills 90210 podcast. My name is Sam, and the next episode we'll be doing is Season 2, Episode 14, called The Last 50 Years, and that is a biggie. Uh, good episode, so tune in next time. Thanks again. Bye.